Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. I'm Vanessa Richardson, and this is Mythology, the ParCast original devoted to humanity's oldest stories. Today, we're continuing our retelling of Virgil's Aeneid, the story we began in Tuesday's episode. This is the second entry of a four-part series, so if you haven't listened to part one yet, make sure you go back and start from the beginning, and tune in next Tuesday and Thursday for parts three and four. Last time, Aeneas and his band of refugees narrowly escaped the sack of Troy, only to be left destitute and homeless. They spent the better part of a decade sailing around the Aegean, searching for a safe place to build a new city. Harried by endless storms, vicious monsters, and the vengeful goddess Juno, they finally made landfall in the friendly port of Carthage. After a brief and fiery affair with the city's queen, Aeneas left to continue his search for Italy, where his descendants were fated to found the future city of Rome. I'm narrating our story as Aeneas's mother, the goddess Venus. She watched over him throughout his journey, guiding him ever closer to his fate. But while Aeneas dreamt of a new home, his heart still belonged to Troy, and soon enough he would have to choose between his destiny and his past. And now, part two of the Aeneid. After he left Carthage, my son's path was finally clear. Apollo had given him the name of his new home. Jupiter, king of Olympus, had sent his own emissary to spur the Trojans on their way. So you can imagine how surprised I was when I looked down and saw his fleet beached on the coast of Sicily near Drepanum, exactly where they'd been one year earlier. Looking closer, I saw four ships on the move. The oarsmen were rowing hard, kicking up spray like their lives depended on it. What was this, I wondered? An attack? But all the ships bore Trojan sails. Still, they clearly were not working together. Two vessels led the others, neck and neck, one with a centaur emblazoned on its front, and the other with a dragon. 
a third ship came barreling past from the rear, overtaking the leaders in an instant. As it flew into the bay, the crew erupted with cheers. A race, I realized. How strange. Turning my attention to the shore, I found more frivolity. A line of tents had been erected along the beach. Chariots sped through the sand, nearly keeping pace with the ships. A line of archers took aim at straw puppets. What was the meaning of this, I wondered. Where was Aeneas? I found my son on a cliff overlooking the ocean, kneeling before a sealed cave. It looked like he'd been there a long time. The ground was stained with the blood of many sacrifices, and the bowl of incense beside him had burned out. The games going on below made sense now. This was the tomb of Aeneas's father, Anchises. They'd buried him here one year earlier, before being swept away to Carthage. Aeneas had returned to say goodbye and pay his respects. That was how Anchises had raised him. He'd taught my son everything. The importance of courage, honor, family, to respect the wisdom of his elders and the will of the gods. Who would have thought I'd mate with a mortal and a common shepherd at that? It was my own father, Jupiter, who got us involved in the first place. He was angry with me for causing trouble with his jealous witch of a wife, Juno. So he conspired with Cupid to make me fall for Anchises. Well, the joke was on him. That shepherd proved to be a better father than I ever could have found on Olympus. So I decided I could stomach one more delay to give Anchises a proper send-off. I waited patiently while Aeneas prayed, and when his vigil ended, I followed him down to the beach where the games continued. A great throng encircled two giant men who were beating one another to a pulp for the crowd's approval. One of the men looked too old for such a competition, but he was nevertheless overwhelming his opponent. The younger boxer staggered back on shaky legs, making a feeble attempt to defend himself from the onslaught of blows. His face was already a bloody mess, but whether out of stupidity or some misplaced sense of honor, he refused to submit. He probably would have been killed if Aeneas hadn't raced into the circle and thrown himself between the two fighters. "'Well done, Dares,' he said, holding the bloodied man back." You fought well, but you were up against supernatural strength. The gods have Antelus's side today, and there's no shame in yielding to that. The fighter and the crowd accepted Aeneas's wisdom, and the match was over. But the victor's thirst for blood wasn't satiated. When they brought him the bull that was to be his prize, he lifted one giant fist into the air and brought it crashing down between the beast's horns. Its brains splattered the onlookers, and it crumpled, dead. The next event was more to my tastes. Riders paraded before the crowd in tight formations, demonstrating expert control of their mounts. At the front was young Ascanius, riding high on his charger. No longer truly a boy, he seemed on the cusp of manhood. 
he was better than the lot of them, and despite my reservations, I found myself glowing with pride as I watched my grandson. Suddenly, a gasp of horror ran through the crowd. At the far end of the beach, a pillar of black smoke was rising into the blue sky. Aeneas stared at the fire in horror, then took off toward it. The ships were burning. By the time Aeneas reached the fleet, the fire had already spread to half the ships. The Trojans leapt into action, forming a chain from the sea to the boats. Buckets of water were passed hand over hand and hurled into the blaze. But the inferno was growing much too fast to control. I saw the look of despair cross my son's face as he realized that the fleet would soon be lost. Turning to the sea, he fell to his knees and began to pray. I'd seen his father do the same on another beach years earlier, after the harpy Kalino made her grim prophecy. She'd cursed the Trojans to wander for years to come, until they grew so hungry they gnawed their own plates in hunger. Anchises had prayed to Jupiter to counter her warnings and to deliver the Trojans to their new home without delay. So far, at least, it seemed that Jupiter had not listened. But Aeneas prayed anyway, with his fleet burning behind him and his comrades racing against hope to staunch the flames. Waves crashed around him, soaking his clothes, chilling him to the bone. A coarse wind whipped his face. Still, he prayed. And this time, Jupiter answered. The men had been so hard at work, their leader so focused on his prayers, that no one had noticed the black storm clouds gathering overhead. They burst suddenly, unleashing sheets of rain on the fleet. The Trojans watched in wonder as the flames slowly dwindled and died. When the last flames had been extinguished, Aeneas appraised the damage. Four ships were clearly beyond repair, reduced to black skeletons. But the other 15 appeared to have sustained only surface damage from the fire. He turned to the watching crowd and, in a grim voice, said, Who is responsible for this? While the rain fell, Aeneas's captains interviewed the Trojans who'd been closest to the beach. Several people had seen a group of Trojan women near the ships before the fires started. The women were rounded up and brought before Aeneas. They stared at the ground, glancing nervously at one another, until Aeneas asked them what had happened. One woman stepped forward. Seven years have passed since Troy fell, she said defiantly. Seven years that we have followed you across the sea, and how many more still lay ahead? Look around you. This land is good enough. Why not throw up walls right here and be done with it? Aeneas's eyes widened as he realized the horrible truth. You were so desperate to end this journey that you set fire to our own ships? He said in disbelief. The woman's face fell. We never would have thought of it ourselves, she said in a voice dripping with shame. 
But a priestess came among us, stirring our fears and filling our hearts with anger. It was her plan from the start, and she spoke with such conviction that we would have followed her anywhere. Aeneas's expression darkened. And where has this priestess gone? he asked. The women all shared frightened looks. Then they turned as one and pointed up to a rainbow curving across the sky. So they had been visited by Iris, that goddess of the rainbow, a pretty thing, but not much for conversation. She serves Juno as a loyal handmaiden and messenger. This scheme had Juno's smell all over it. She'd sent Iris among Aeneas's ranks to corrupt the women's thoughts and drive them to burn their own fleet. A treacherous plot, even for her. I'd known she was still fuming over her beloved Dido's death, but this filled me with worry. If she was this determined to keep Aeneas from his destiny, what might she have in store next? I could not sit by and watch any longer. Something had to be done. As I considered my plan, Aeneas faced his own decision. That night, he walked along the beach, consumed in dark thoughts and worries. The women had been driven to sabotage by an outside force, that much he knew. But their complaints had been their own. He had dragged them across the world and brought them no closer to safety. How long could he expect them to keep going? He stared out across the sea into the darkness. Somewhere out there was the land he sought, the place where he would one day build a new city for Ascanius, and also the city he'd left behind. Troy. Even now he could picture his old home. Its great walls and arches had never been far from his mind. The fields where he'd played as a boy, where so many of his childhood friends had been killed in battle. His father's house. He was mired in these thoughts of the past when he heard the voice. Barely audible over the crashing waves and howling wind, it whispered a single word. Aeneas. He froze, searched the darkness, but saw only moonlight reflecting off the waves. Or was that all it was? Father? He gasped. The barely visible shade of Anchises was hovering over the water in front of him. Aeneas, the ghost whispered again, I would speak with you. Aeneas lunged forward into the water, fighting against the waves with every step, but Anchises' ghost kept drifting further away. I'm here, father, he shouted. What is it you came to tell me? Not here, came Anchises' voice. You must visit me in the underworld. Go to the Sibyl of Kumai. She will bring you to me. Aeneas gaped, mind reeling with questions. He did not know who the Sibyl of Kumai was or what his father needed to tell him so badly. But before he could ask, a wave crashed over him, sweeping him off of his feet. When he came spluttering back to the surface, Anchises' ghost was gone. Coming up, Aeneas travels to the land of the dead. Now back to the story. 
Go to the Sibyl of Kumai. She will bring you to me. That was the strange message delivered to Aeneas by the ghost of his father, Anchises. He did not know what could be so important or what had transpired to allow Anchises to speak across the veil. But Aeneas did not question. If his father had summoned him, this dutiful son would answer. So the fleet embarked once more, leaving behind the four burnt ships and those Trojans who had lost their stomach for the voyage. Aeneas bid them no ill will as he left. It was fitting, he thought, that a Trojan city should stand at Drepanum, the place where his father's bones had been laid to rest. As the fifteen ships sailed north, I looked ahead and saw black squalls forming on the horizon, more of Juno's handiwork. I had never known an Olympian to be so petty. Juno sent my son one misfortune after another. She hated him with unchecked passion, first because of our old grudge. He was my son and a Trojan, and the Trojans had slighted her once. She had destroyed their city over an insult, and even that had not been enough. Because he spurned her beloved Dido, who killed herself in response, because he would father the Romans, the empire that would wipe her beloved Carthage from the earth. I knew then that it would never end. No amount of my son's suffering would sate her thirst for vengeance, nor would the word of the fates convince her to put an end to her cruel crusade. So far, I'd been satisfied to watch my son's voyage from a distance, intervening from time to time to keep him on course. But Juno had forced my hand. If she wanted a war with my son, he would not fight alone. And neither would I. When the Titans were overthrown, the cosmos was divided between three brothers. My father, Jupiter, became the king of Olympus, watching over land and sky. Pluto was put in charge of the underworld, Hades, and Neptune took the sea. Some fear Pluto most, for there's nothing that shakes mortal hearts more than death. But his world has its own order, horrible as it may be. Neptune, on the other hand, rules his lair by laws not even I understand. I've heard it whispered that the Titan stock flows thicker in his veins than either of his brothers, and I believe it. But it was Neptune's realm my son sought to traverse, and his help I needed. I swam down into the inky darkness, past sharks and whales and strange creatures that had never been seen by mortal eyes, until a single point of light bloomed in the deep. As it grew closer, a great tremor shook the sea. A powerful shockwave slammed against me, slowing me for a moment, but I pushed through it. My uncle was home. When the fleet reached Kumai, Aeneas told his captains to beach the ships and prepare for a short stay. There were streams for fresh water and woods to hunt until he returned. The men protested, insisting that they accompany their leader, but he would not be swayed. The next part of the journey was his alone. The Sibyl of Kumai was said to be a priestess of Apollo, older and more powerful than any oracle. 
Through rumor and whisper, Aeneas had learned where he might find her. He went up into the mountains until he reached a wide basin. Once, long ago, it had been the mouth of a volcano, but now it was a dank and dreary marsh. Through the swamp he went until he reached the place he sought, a large cave surrounded by black, standing water. The air around it was thick with noxious fumes, and no sounds of waterfowl could be heard in its vicinity. Avernus, they called it, the place without birds. He found the old crone inside, already in the throes of her prayer. She lashed and whirled, chanting in a language he did not understand. Her voice seemed to come not from herself, but from the very walls. Aeneas looked around and saw that the sides of the cavern were carved with one hundred twisted faces, mouths agape in wordless howls. The sibyl whirled to a stop in front of Aeneas. "'Son of the goddess,' she moaned. "'You who have suffered much at the hands of Juno, your journey is almost at its end, but your suffering has just begun.'" Then she told him what she had seen through her smoke and incense, how Aeneas would arrive safely in the land of Italy, how a great war awaited him along with a new home. Some things he had heard before, others he had not. He listened patiently to it all, and when the Sibyl was done, he asked her one more question. Would she take him to his father? The Sibyl's lips curled into a wicked smile. The descent to hell is easy, she croaked. The return is another matter. She sent him into the marsh to cut a golden bough from the base of an oak. When he returned, she had brought in four black heifers. Aeneas watched as the Sibyl cut their throats, drained their blood into bowls, spreading their entrails over the cavern floor. Once she'd rendered the animals fat and poured it around the pattern, she began to chant and dance again. The Sibyl's prayer continued well into the night. Aeneas watched for a long time, but he soon grew weary and sat against the wall to wait. The first rays of dawn were just breaching the cave when the earth began to tremble. Aeneas leapt to his feet as a violent wind swept through the place. The hairs on his neck stood on end, and the sibyl shrieked with laughter. A loud crack shook the cavern. Aeneas threw his arms up to cover himself as rocks tumbled from above. When the dust settled, he saw a narrow gap in the cavern wall. Tendrils of white mist reached out, beckoning him inside. "'Bring your sword and your courage,' said the sibyl, and she stepped through the opening. As Aeneas was entering the underworld, I was passing through the gates of Neptune's palace— I found my uncle in his great hall, seated on a throne of shells. A tangled gray beard fell around his shoulders like a net of sea kelp. He fixed me with his lethal eyes, and in a voice like breaking waves, asked me why I'd come. Juno, I said, the goddess whose fury knows no bounds, 
perhaps you've sensed her unleashing storms up above. I thought the sea was your realm, but she seems to come and go and do as she pleases. The sea god's nostrils flared with fury. I could see that this was news to him, though he would never admit it. What business is it of yours who I allow in my domain? He growled. I paused then, considering my options. If he caught me in a lie, he might turn against my son, and with how much sea still lay ahead of the Trojans, he would make a worse enemy than even Juno. So I laid it bare. It's my son, Aeneas, I said. Juno has stalked him all the way from Troy. Nothing will sate her thirst for vengeance. She's bent on keeping him from his fated city. Neptune laughed. None can change what the fates have wrought, he rumbled. But that hasn't stopped her from trying, I insisted. If you don't care that Juno disrespects your territory, consider one who has shown you nothing but respect. My son has always treated you well. He has made suitable offerings to not invoke my anger, answered the sea god. My favor comes at a higher cost. My heart dropped, wondering what it was he might want. It did not matter. I needed his help. So I told the sea god to name his price. As I parlayed with Neptune, my son was standing on the bank of a dark river, awaiting transport into the land of the dead. A throng of shimmering, translucent ghosts crowded around him, staring longingly at the distant shore. A small skiff was making its way across the river, propelled by a gaunt old ferryman in a filthy tunic. As he neared the bank, the shades lurched forward, groping for the boat with such urgency that the ferryman had to beat them back with his oar. Once the masses had retreated, he pointed to a few of the shades and beckoned them forward. The sibyl seized Aeneas's arm and dragged him forward through the crowd. Stop right there, growled the ferryman when he saw them. This is the land of the dead, and it is the dead I serve. I do not ferry living souls. That's enough, Charon, said the sibyl curtly. We don't come empty-handed. She reached beneath her shawl and produced the golden bow that Aeneas had cut. The ferryman's eyes blazed with fury, but he gestured for them to climb aboard. Aeneas clambered on as quickly as he could, trying not to look back at the moaning shades. Charon pushed off from the bank, and within moments they were being swept down the river. I wish that I could have accompanied my son on that perilous journey. Hades' halls are not meant for the eyes of the living, but Aeneas's courage did not fail him. If he trembled at the sight of the three-headed hound Cerberus, I could not tell you, but he waited patiently as the sibyl threw it drugged bread, and when it fell asleep, he clambered quickly over its slumbering body. They passed quickly through the cave of the infant dead, though their ceaseless wails tore at my son's heart. They hurried past the souls of the falsely accused, waiting patiently in a winding line for a second judgment. But when they reached the fields of mourning, 
I knew my son would falter. There wait the souls who were killed by love, those poor mortals who burned too bright, who were consumed by their passion and driven to despair. And there he found her, his beloved queen of Carthage. Dido, he gasped when he saw her. My queen, don't let this be true. How did you come to this horrible place? What happened? She did not respond or even meet his eyes. The light that had once blazed in them so brightly was gone. A candle burnt to the wick. She stared at the ground, stony and silent. I prayed that my son would move on, leave Dido in the past where she belonged, but his eyes were sharp, and he saw the truth. He saw the bloody wound where she'd plunged his sword into her breast, and the marks where the flames had whipped her arms. He saw it all and knew what he had done. Not for me, he pleaded. You didn't do this for me. By the stars on high, I never would have left if I'd known, if I'd a choice at all. Oh, Dido, won't you say anything? But she would not respond or speak a single word, no matter how many tears he shed or promises he made. Eventually, she turned and stalked wordlessly away into the gray forest. Aeneas stared after her, overcome with guilt and despair. The hour is late, said the Sibyl, who'd been watching through all of this. Your father waits. With that, she turned and hobbled off. Aeneas rose and followed. Coming up, Aeneas faces his past and future. Now back to the story. At the request of his father's ghost, Aeneas visited the Sibyl of Cumai and asked her to guide him into the underworld. He saw many strange things on that journey, nightmarish creatures, hordes of the dead waiting judgment in endless winding lines. Even Dido, the woman he had loved and spurned, was there, having killed herself after his departure from Carthage. Aeneas begged her for forgiveness, but she gave him none. As this transpired, I had my own task to attend to. I visited my uncle Neptune and begged him to grant Aeneas safe passage for the final leg of his journey. The king of the deep fixed me with his gaze and told me what my request would cost. One life, he rumbled. One human life for all the lives in this fleet. For that I will calm the raging sky and sea. Not even Juno will harm your son while he's in my domain. A reasonable price, is it not? A difficult question. Reasonable means a different thing from one century to another. Olympus had grown so civilized that I'd almost forgotten the days when offerings of livestock and riches hardly turned a god's head, when human blood was the only currency accepted by the immortals. I'd thought those days were over, but Neptune was an old god, stuck in his old ways. My son would never have agreed to it, that much I knew. 
He would have struggled on, suffering whatever storms Juno hurled his way, content to plod slowly toward his destiny. He got his patience from his father, I'm afraid. While I considered Neptune's price, the Sibyl led Aeneas deeper into the underworld. They had reached the field of fallen heroes. Trojan soldiers turned and stared as he passed, mouths agape in wonder. Everywhere Aeneas looked, he saw the familiar faces of men who had fought at his side. "'Why have you come to us, Aeneas?' they called. "'Stay a while.' Aeneas moved on, though it broke his heart to do so. They came to a fork in the road. Aeneas looked down the path leading to the left and saw a great archway, a winged figure perched above it, draped in blood-spattered robes. Beyond the arch, the sky crackled with red fire, and Aeneas heard a cacophony of horrible sounds, distant groans and wails, the crack of whips, the rattle of chains, and a great grinding wheel of stone. The sibyl pointed a bony finger toward the arch and said, "'There lies Tartarus, final home of the damned.' King Radamanthus of Crete holds power there, distributing judgment and punishment to the wicked. He has all manner of terrible creatures at his disposal, the Furies and the Fifty-Headed Hydra and more. There you will find the Abyss, twice as deep as Olympus is tall, where Jupiter sealed the Titans long ago." Then she pointed at the other path, which led to the right, and said, We'll go this way. They reached the fields of Elysium, where radiant spirits basked in the light of a soft sun. Aeneas saw joyous faces all around. Generations of Trojans loafed in the shade, their voices sparkling with laughter, while a band of merry musicians played. The lead musician strummed a lyre and sang in a dulcet voice, What dost make the cornfield smile, and beneath what constellations should thou plant thy little seeds and make administrations to wheat, to elm, to vine and steer, the fruit of all creation? This is the theme of which I sing to every Greek and Thracian. This song was writ, or will be writ, by one whose name you know well. It's not his best, so judge him not, that Roman poet Virgil. As my son neared them, the lyre player lowered his instrument. Aeneas took in the sight of this man, his Thracian robes, his seven-stringed lyre. He had never seen his face before, but he knew who he was in an instant. Orpheus, the legendary singer. Long before Aeneas was born, he too had traveled to the underworld as a living man in search of his lost love. His song had shattered Pluto's icy resolve and won him the right to bring his lover back to the realm of the living. But when he lost his nerve on the return and looked behind him, she vanished forever. Son of the goddess, said Orpheus, this is a realm of joy. Why do you bring us such dark clouds? Aeneas shuddered to speak. I have seen things here I did not expect, he whispered. 
ones I left behind, ones sent here by my own hand. Why did the gods take them and leave me to carry on? Orpheus put a hand on Aeneas's shoulder. Your comrades' deaths are not yours to carry, and neither is Dido's. Some love is doomed. Take it from one who knows better than most. Look ahead, Aeneas. Never look back. With that, Orpheus struck his lyre and launched back into his ballad. And now the bees, you thrifty bees, I now shall sing your praises and how to farm your honey whilst avoiding lacerations. The poet walked away, his melodious voice floating over the fields. The sibyl of Kumai placed a hand on Aeneas's arm. It's time, she said. Anchises was waiting for our son atop a high hill overlooking the valley. Aeneas embraced his father with tears streaming down his face. In a choked voice, he began to tell his father of all that had happened since his death. But Anchises stopped him. My boy, he laughed, I did not summon you here to discuss the past, but to show you your future. Anchises gestured to the valley below. Aeneas looked down and his eyes widened. He saw sparkling rivers, fields of white lilies, and rising from those fields was the most magnificent city he had ever seen. Great stone walls towered into the heavens, taller than even the walls of Troy. At its base there was a great throng of people of every race and nation, all looking up at Aeneas in admiration. "'Who are these people? What is this place?' Aeneas asked." This is the city your children's children will build one day, croaked old Anchises, and those are your descendants. Look among them and you will see countless heroes yet to be born. Romulus and Remus, Julius Caesar, Caesar Augustus, they will conquer the Greeks. Yes, the ones that burned Troy will kneel to the children of Trojans. Even now, the waters of the Caspian Sea tremble at their approach. Aeneas took in his father's words, shaken by the scope of it all. His destiny had been laid bare before him, and he could scarcely comprehend it. So he stood there, staring down at the valley until the sibyl called him. It was time to go. Anchises hugged Aeneas once more and gave these parting words. I brought you here so you might know what you fight for and leave the past behind. Troy is gone. Look to Rome. Aeneas nodded and wiped the tears from his eyes. He turned and followed the sibyl upwards into blinding light. Aeneas left the sibyl at her cave and returned to his fleet. The men were overjoyed to see their leader and cheered when he gave the order to raise the sails. They had lingered long enough. As they headed out into open water, a patch of gray clouds menaced the horizon to the north. Aeneas fell asleep to the sound of distant thunder, certain that Juno's wrath was waiting for him. 
When he awoke the next morning, he was surprised to find clear blue skies and not a cloud in sight. Luck, it seemed, had smiled on the Trojans at last. But my son's elation lasted only a moment. In sorrowful voices, his crew informed him that the fleet's best helmsman, an experienced sailor named Palinurus, had fallen asleep during the night and tumbled overboard. Aeneas was surprised at the news, for Palinurus had been one of his best. He was grieved to say goodbye to yet another comrade, but there was nothing to be done. A strong northward wind bore down on the fleet, filling their sails and offering to spur them on their way. So they put grim thoughts behind them and continued up the coast without delay. I was glad that my son didn't know the role I'd played in his affairs this time. He would not have been pleased to see me drag his poor helmsman into the deep. But one life for a fleet was cheap, and I paid it gladly. Sometimes the old ways are best. Neptune kept his end of the bargain, and Aeneas saw no more bad weather for the next leg of their voyage. They sailed up the coast until low supplies forced them to drop anchor in a river. Aeneas led a party of hunters ashore, taking his son Ascanius with him. After a day's search, they still had not managed to find any game, so they rolled out blankets beneath a tree and prepared a rough picnic from their meager stores. Stomachs rumbling, they heaped apple slices onto squares of tough flatbread and began to eat. As grim as their journey and present circumstances were, the crew was in good spirits. Ascanius laughed suddenly and pointed to his cobbled-together meal— Look, father, he said, we're so hungry, we're eating our platters. Aeneas paused, his meal half-eaten. His son's joke stirred a memory. The harpy Kalino said those very words when she made her grim prophecy, that the Trojans' voyage would not end until they ate their own plates from hunger. He had heard so many prophecies on his journey— first from the ghost of his wife, as Troy burnt around him, then from the oracle of Apollo, the sibyl of Cumai, and finally from his own father. Each omen had brought more hardship, another task or trial, another year on a thankless sea, another day facing Juno's wrath. Every prophecy had brought some version of the same message, that the fates had spoken." A great destiny awaited him, and it could not be changed. He could journey bravely towards it, or fight it and be swept along against his will. He was caught, for better or for worse, in the tides of fate. My son chuckled to himself. The harpy had meant to curse him, but she'd been the best prophet of the lot. He was hungry, yes. He'd suffered. But he was alive. Somehow the Trojans came through it all and were still fighting. His suffering was not a punishment. It was a reminder that he still lived. His trials were not roadblocks, but signs that he was on the right path. The path of fate. 
If the only choice was how he faced his future, then that was enough. He would walk his path gladly until the end of his days. As Aeneas thought this, he happened to turn and something caught his eye in the far-off distance. He stood, slowly taking in the sight of the land stretched before him. He saw rolling hills, sparkling rivers, and fields of white lily, the same hills, rivers, and fields he'd seen while standing beside his father in Elysium. Tears sprang to his eyes. He could see it all, the walls they would build, the reaching towers, the sparkling city, a future Rome, a new Troy. My son was home. Thanks for joining us for this special episode of Mythology as we retell the Aeneid. This Tuesday, we'll continue the story of Aeneas as he fights to protect his new home against his most formidable enemy yet. You can find more episodes of Mythology and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Mythology, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Mythology on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythology in the search bar. If you enjoy Mythology, you'll love my other podcast, Tales. Tales presents fairy tales the way they were originally told, orally and unadulterated. Traditional fairy tales aren't exactly suitable for children. And every Wednesday, we dive into another dark, classic tale. Mythology will be back on Tuesday with another epic story. Mythology was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Mythology was written by Andrew Kelleher, with writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 